Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here in snowy Wisconsin. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin and we have our full panel with us, which means Claire Zalke, our Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action is with us. Claire, good to see you. Thank you. Good to be here with y'all, even if it is a little bit snowy. Oh, you know what though? It's a beautiful snow. We've had actually had very little here in the Milwaukee area this year. And so it's kind of beautiful knowing it'll be gone right away. And uh, Robert Craig joins us too. Robert's the executive director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to have you. Uh, good morning, everyone. So we have a packed, packed, packed agenda today for you folks. Uh, we are less than a week out of the spring election. It's a big deal, folks. Want to make sure uh, that everyone is uh, engaged in that. Don't forget, you got to vote by next Tuesday. Early voting in most communities uh, wraps up. It wraps up this week. So if you need to vote early, make sure you do that. Again, these are local, nonpartisan elections. So uh, it's uh, very different from community to community. But there's been a number of trends running through a lot of these spring elections. Uh, and there's definitely an organized national effort from the right around a number of things in the culture wars. We're going to talk about that later in the show. We hope to be joined by Tim Nordine. He is the board president of the Eau Claire School Board and also running for re-election. We're going to talk more with him about what local candidates are facing this cycle. But before we do that and talk about a number of other issues going on in the state, we do got to start off with the news that broke last night, which is Wednesday. We record Thursday mornings, and uh, that is Speaker Robin Voss is in contempt of court for failing to turn over records related to the sham election review that we talk about all the time. Claire, this is a big deal. Um, Robin Voss, as we've talked about, is basically got a mutiny within his caucus from the QAnon caucus and has attempted to sort of hold it off by this completely sham review that he has enabled Michael Gableman. And it appears he is now in contempt of court for not turning over records. Claire, not a little bit surprising, but not shocking given the way this circus has gone. Your thoughts, Claire? Yeah, no, I mean, this judge, um, this Dane County judge has been, I think, really clear in her direction to Robin Voss and um, set really clear guidelines that right, I think it was that um, Voss needed to turn over some some records that the judge deemed to be open records, public records within 14 days or pay a daily fine if he didn't. So, I mean, to me, that that says like this is a serious order and if you don't do it being held in contempt should not be a, a tremendous surprise right um because it, it wasn't it wasn't vague or loosey-goosey right um so yeah not i'm not surprised at all uh, i'm also not surprised that robin voss didn't comply it feels like he's trying to walk this line between appeasing his uh, more fringe members of his caucus who um, are still supporting and perpetuating this big lie and want uh, Gableman's, um, you know, draining of public funds effort to continue, um, but also knowing that it can't really go anywhere. So he, he probably was just like, maybe if I do nothing, it'll be okay. Um, and we'll try to run out the clock. Um, but the judge was not bluffing, obviously. Uh, okay. 
Claire, yeah. you, you use the word nothing. I'm wondering if maybe there's nothing to turn over and that's part of the embarrassment. Robert, your thoughts? Look, I think we all know that the Republican playbook is to impose law and order on other others that are so designated and not on themselves and that they're entire hypocrites. Otherwise, Donald Trump would not be the front runner for president in 2024, the most lawless president in American history by far. Uh, and you, I, I think it's very clear here, and you see this with right-wing uh, media carrying on about how dare we prosecute the folks that, that, that had a violent insurrection at the Capitol, but then we should throw the book away, throw, throw the key away on a, a low-income person of color who, who commits a petty drug crime, right? It's just unbelievable. And so Robin Voss thought he could get away with it, knows he has a state Supreme Court, decided, as Claire said, to push the envelope. And even now, we're the ones who are going to pay. He will just use taxpayer money to pay his $1,000 legal fees if he chooses not to release his, um, the information that is required under state law within 14 days. And that's the real question. Is he going to release the information now, or is he going to start asking all of us to pay his fine uh, for, for completely political purposes? And you can see how much they've politicized state government uh, while they also charge that we're politicizing schools for just trying to teach American history, because uh, it, it's also a toxic information environment. And so they're perfectly fine using public resources to rig the districts for their party, uh, to run sham investigations when that's in their political uh, interest, to uh, try to appease Donald Trump and the QAnon caucus and their own party and the Insurrection Caucus, which is the same thing. And then, of course, flaunting the law uh, when, it, when, it, um, when it's inconvenient or when it could actually damage them and use our resources to pay the cost. And I can only imagine what this looks like if they take back full power in 2022 and then nationally in 2024. Then you'll see the heavy hand of law and order being imposed upon um, opponents, just like uh, sort of the slippery slope to eventual uh, Putinism. Well, folks, we're going to continue to track this issue. Continue. We'll, we'll see if there's anything that gets turned over. But uh, Claire, before we uh, take our first break, I do want to get your comment on uh, the big healthcare news this week, and that is uh, coming out of the uh, the uh, federal government. Is we've got uh, the FDA and the CDC are now decided that we need a second booster, and so folks who are 50. 50 and up are now eligible for a second booster. Claire, this is um, fairly big news. And they're saying as if you're over 65, it's critically important. Claire? Thanks. I actually think this is a big step towards us being able to treat COVID as endemic instead of pandemic, meaning that it's uh, something that sort of exists at a low and hopefully not deadly um, bug in our community. Um, we're obviously not there yet, especially considering how many folks are unvaccinated and the risk for new and more serious variants coming out of <clears throat> um, unvaccinated communities, both in our country and elsewhere. Um, but um, getting to a place where um, 
critically vulnerable people, um, people who are immunocompromised, people with disabilities, um, people whose age makes them vulnerable, um, allowing those folks to get um, shots every you know six months or, or whatever so that their, um, their risk of serious illness, hospitalization, or death because of COVID is um, dramatically reduced or nearly eliminated is a really, a really big step towards um, us as a society being able to protect them and, and therefore start figuring out how we're going to be able to treat this um, as, as endemic. So, so I, I think it's a big deal. So Claire, just to help me understand this, we're, we're essentially probably moving to a phase where maybe annually we get to the point where it's like an annual flu shot, where it takes into consideration what they're seeing out there around the globe in terms of strains of COVID and produce a annual COVID booster. Is that, is that what we're trying to head to here? I think that's where a lot of people in this country want to head. Um, and I think for the United States, it makes sense. Um, but it's important to not forget the um, sort of the global picture, right? Which is that the pandemic isn't going to really end here until it ends everywhere. And we've been saying this since the very beginning. Um, and so I, I want us to get to a place where I just get my COVID shot every every six to eight months, and um, I'm protected from from death from COVID. Um, even as somebody with a condition that makes them predisposed to serious COVID con- um, symptoms, um, but um, not if that takes away capacity or ability for other places in the world where the, like there are not large vaccination rates yet um, because um, you know the United States and other um, industrialized countries are taking all of all of the COVID vaccine capacity. So so yes, I want us to get there. Um, but I think once once we're so far down that path, it might be easy to forget that other places in the world aren't. Well, we certainly won't, Robert, and I'm sure you haven't. Robert, any update following up on what Claire was mentioning there? Where the hell are we on this WTO waiver? Well, we don't seem to be anywhere, and the EU is also blocking. Uh, the Congressional Progressive Caucus has uh, proposed us just unilaterally uh, you know, suspending the, the patents, not only for uh, COVID-19 drugs, but other drugs which are vital to public health, which are facing price gouging and therefore denial of care is what it amounts to. But I would just also add to what Claire said on the booster shot. It would be nice if there, if the epidemiologists could be united. That's one of our biggest problems. So you have some epidemiologists saying that, uh, that well, I'm very concerned that they did this except for people who are immune compromised. And of course, that's a vital group because the uh, refusal of the public to follow public health guidelines puts them at tremendous risk and makes them not be able to live their lives. And so that is important. But then you have others saying, look, uh, long COVID could cause serious damage and, and heart damage and other things. And it's absolutely good to have a fourth booster in order to prevent infection in the first place, because just because you're not hospital, likely be hospitalized or die doesn't mean you're not damaged by this virus. And so you have both dueling epidemiologists saying the same thing in the major coverage. That just leads to more public confusion and is part of why we have the lowest booster rate in the Western world and still an appallingly low original vaccination rate because at least we need the public health experts to speak with one damn voice. He was my friend. Well, folks, we're going to continue to try to provide the best 
public health information on COVID and other other issues uh, going forward. Uh, you are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Folks, uh, mentioned it at the beginning of the show, we have really super important spring elections coming up next week. In fact, many of you have already voted. Early voting is open. You can vote early all the way through this week, but if you don't, get out and vote next Tuesday. And folks, all these elections are very different in many ways in our communities, but as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and we have talked about this before, uh, this, the right wing, the, the QAnon movement that's putting pressure on Speaker Voss that we talked about earlier in the show has been all over these spring elections. And even prior to that, all over a lot of our local school boards with just outrageous, uh, I'd, I'll say it, undemocratic, horrible behavior. And we're really fortunate to be joined today by someone who's been standing up uh, to that and has faced uh, some of the worst of that's the, those threats. And that is Tim Nordine. He is the president of the Eau Claire School Board. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Matt. Well, first of all, thank you for um, leading in your community uh, on, on a school board, which we know is always challenging work. But uh, Tim, tell our listeners, we have you on because um, you, as the school board president, um, have dealt with unruly school board meetings that have then also now led to um, a death threat uh, uh, against yourself. Tell our listeners a little bit more about what, what you have faced. That's, that's absolutely correct. I think you know, probably many of your listeners are already aware that you know, with, as COVID came into play, we started to see attacks on school boards or organized protests against COVID mitigation, mitigation members, anti-maskers, and things like that. And then as uh, the year progressed, and when we had the racial reckoning around George Floyd's murder and other issues, now, of course, we're having attacks on our transgender and our LGBTQ students. Um, through all that, there's been sort of just an acceleration of anger and outright rage, and it did it did culminate, uh, you know, in this election season. So I'm on the ballot along with another incumbent, uh, as well as Markwell Johnson, as well as a, a new candidate running, Stephanie Farrar. The three of us are, are running more or less together on this uh, against three right wing candidates, and this has uh, they've purposely accelerated some of the the misinformation about how our schools and uh, staff handle, you know, safe spaces for students, students that are sharing things of a personal nature with teachers and are afraid or unsafe to share them at home. Uh, and it, did, it did culminate in a death threat that I received uh, just over a week ago now, uh, threatening to kill me and my entire family, as well as, you know, shoot up your next school board meeting. And I think that's the part that obviously the threat to my family is personal to me and, and is unacceptable. But the idea is just too easy for any of us to believe that a public meeting could be the site of a mass shooting. And this has been, this is a direct reaction to the right wing in our community, you know, pushing out false and misleading claims about our schools and getting those out to state and national right wing media that then bring all of this attention and bring this insanity to our individual communities. So it's both inside and outside now that our schools are getting this in. And I think Eau Claire is different in this case because we have been so focused on lately, but we know that it's going on around the state of Wisconsin. It is not just us, it is Beloit, it is Stevens Point, 
It is Oconomowoc. It is Waukesha. It is everywhere that the right wing is trying to rule us by fear and intimidation. Robert, first question. Yeah, so you've, Tim, thanks for coming on, and you've experienced this at the front end, and the plight of you and thousands of other uh, school board members and school administrators around the country, and even parents who come to school board meetings and may be shouted down, is similar to what we're seeing with uh, folks who do our election work, right? And so there's a similar attitude, and we're, we're, we've gone the opposite. We're, we stopped honoring public service a long time ago in a, in a real sense, but now we're attacking public service, or at least part of us is. And it's for political purposes. I mean, what's clear if you le- read the Republican roadmaps, they're accusing you and other school board members of being political. This is a roadmap for how they can win governor's races and state legislative races, and their test case was Virginia in November. And so in an ironic way, they're the ones politicizing schools, and they don't care about the consequences, and they don't actually care about what happens to these kids and what their, their good is. And I think you have that, but then you have the other problem, which is conservatism, uh, certainly in the United States in the 20th century, they always find a new group that is still not fully accepted. So in the 70s, it was, you know, traditional white male uh, gay people were scary. Now they're not scary anymore because of social progress, but you can make trans people scary and you can target vulnerable kids. Could you talk a little bit, and I know we need to do better publication education on this, but the problem is that they've polluted the information stream so much that it's hard to get a real message through. But you could talk a little bit about uh, the impact on these kids. They have very high suicide rates. This is a very vulnerable time in everyone's life, even if they're uh, they're 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 straight and and uh, and seen as normal in our society, right? Let alone a trans kid who's trying to come to terms with it. So I just think we we need to explain to people that the incredible collateral damage that conservatives are willing to risk here, not just risk, cause for their own political benefit. You're you're spot on, and the. Right now, the, the main focus of the attacks that we're getting in Eau Claire and that are happening across the nation are on our trans kids. Uh, just recently, our, the right-wing candidates here had a mailer sent out and accused me and my co-candidates of, of being involved in special interests and standing up for them. The special interest that we're for is children, right? That we want our kids to be safe. And let's be, let's be clear, coming out, even you might be right, that being a gay man is a lot less scary anymore. But I can tell you right now that the the gay and lesbian and queer kids that my friend, my sons are friends with, they're they're frightened too. They don't know how to come out. It is still a major event in a young person's life. And they're trying to tell us that by respecting privacy, by being a trusted adult in our schools, that somehow that's more important to, to out them forcefully than it is to respect the privacy and the journey of an individual student. I mean, really the right wing right now is saying that parents own every aspect of their child's life, that their children are their property. And while parents, of course, have a responsibility to make, have their kids be the best that they can be to support and love them. I I think it's very clear, especially in this country, that when we start treating people like property, 
that has dire consequences. So they're trying to frighten us by saying, you're, you're hiding information from us. But in reality, a child, a young person is a person and they have the right to themselves. And if they choose to share that with a trusted adult in one of our schools, that adult has to recognize the privilege there. And I, I really think that the, you need to turn it around and say, if you're upset that you feel like your child has shared something intimate about themselves, something personal about themselves, with a teacher and you didn't hear about it, you really need to be questioning, why wasn't my child able to share it with me? What have I done to make that a place where they can't be themselves around me, the person who is supposed to be their first layer of support? Claire? Great point, Tim. I just want to say before we go to Claire on this affecting non-trans kids, other gay kids, a lot of other kids who are not seen as normative. And I'm a gay man, so I was really trying to point out that I don't face and, and even a, a kid like me doesn't face the same uh, kind of hysteria that trans kids do. But you're right, it terrifies everyone. So I think you make a great clarification on that, Tim. Yeah, Tim, that was really, really powerful. Um, I wish I had a really poignant question to follow up or a probing <laughs> question to follow up there uh, because it was so poignant. Um, but instead, I'll say, you know, this has gotten a lot of... Um, media attention, uh, not just from us, but obviously outlets around the state and even around the country. Um, I imagine you never expected to be in a situation like this. So I'll just ask, you know, how, how are you, how are you doing? Um, and how can we, um, support you and your colleagues moving, moving forward, especially with this election around the corner? Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that question. And yes, I, I don't think any of us ever expected to uh, be figures in the national media, even on a small stage. I, I just actually found out today we've made it international, as Eau Claire was uh, in an article by the Daily Mail, uh, and in the course, in a, an unfriendly way. So that, that part is certainly surprising. And I think the thing that we need to do, and I, I called for this in my statement after the threat, and, and you know, once I knew that my family was safe. Once I knew that our community was safe, the police do know who issued that threat and the case is at the DA right now to take the next steps. Once I knew that, I was I was really able to focus on saying, I'm not going to be intimidated by this. And we as a community aren't going to be intimidated. So I, I've called for everybody in Eau Claire to come out to vote and reject these kind of tactics. You may not agree with me on everything. You may not agree with my co-candidates, Mark Paul Johnson and Stephanie Farrar, but what we should agree on is that our democracy has measures in place when we disagree on things. And those measures do not include hysteria, fear, intimidation, bullying. We have to come out together. So what people can do to help right now is go to the ballot box. You know, here in Eau Claire, we have early voting today and tomorrow. And then of course the election on Tuesday, go to the ballot box, bring two friends, Bring your mom, bring your brother, bring everybody, because what we have to do is we have to stand up and say, we reject this. You know, and one of my board colleagues said, we're not rejecting this in anger. We're rejecting this in power. We're going to say that our schools are decided by our democratic society, not by intimidation, not by fear, not by lies. And so my real ask for everybody that can hear me, everybody in Eau Claire, everybody in every school district in Wisconsin, which I guess is everybody, be there to vote and make it known. Because we have to put this down in the way that moves forward our democratic society and rejects this kind of extremism. 
it's it's imperative right now for our schools, but it's imperative going forward as well to show that this is not the way that our society can move. Well, Tim, that was beautiful, folks. I it, he can't I can't say it any better. It's critical you get out and vote. And this weekend, make sure you reach out and call some people, especially if you live in Eau Claire, right? Let them know what's at stake and make sure they get out and vote this Tuesday. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for your leadership uh, on this issue and what you do every day uh, on the uh, school board in Eau Claire. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for having me. I, for everybody that's, that's serving in the state, we're with you. We're together. Keep it up. Okay, folks, we got to take a break. We really appreciate Tim Nardine. Again, folks, get out and vote. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Folks, not only did we have the news, right? We have this important news around uh, the boosters. Uh, We have talked in the past, and and I want to start this segment out, Claire, talking about something you brought up, and that is this idea that there was a number of folks who got expanded access to the Affordable Care Act, got expanded access uh, to health coverage uh, through the pandemic. Um, They will lose access um, this fall to that expanded coverage. We believe it's up to around 14 million folks potentially nationally. Uh, If Congress does not take action and extend either indefinitely or permanently, um, this expansion, which is, by the way, extremely popular, is worth pointing out. The popularity of the Affordable Care Act has gone up five points in national polling since this expansion occurred. Claire, this is a really, really important issue, uh, and we need our listeners engaged on it. Uh, Tell them more. So um, to remind folks, the um, during the pandemic, the federal government did a number of things to try to help people out, right? Um, especially when it comes to healthcare. So um, one of the things that they did was have this emergency, um, this public health emergency that um, allowed people to enroll on their state's Medicaid programs and just stay enrolled. That made it easier for folks to enroll. Um, didn't uh, check. Uh, whether people would um, be falling off of their coverage under new circumstances. They just like assumed that people needed to stay on, right? Which, which gave a lot of people um, access to, to affordable healthcare um, if they were per, uh, low, lower income. Um, but they also created um, enhanced and new uh, subsidies for people who purchased their coverage on the marketplace. And this created um, much, much more affordable plans for, uh, for folks to buy their own coverage. Um, and then something um, else that they did was put a limit on how much people should have to pay for their coverage um, out of pocket if they are purchasing their insurance, which is, I think, eight and a half percent. And this provided some relief for um, healthcare costs for people who um, before the American Rescue Plan Act, before COVID, had never had any relief for their uh, costs of their insurance, right? So people who made, for example, above like 400% of the federal poverty line. Um, so it's a concern that these uh, public health emergencies um, are going to start winding down. So people must, might lose their coverage if they have it right now through Medicaid programs. Um, and that the enhanced subsidies might, uh, through the American Rescue Plan Act, might be sunsetting soon. 
So, so that's sort of the context through which we're viewing um, these, these upcoming challenges. And um, I, I'm really concerned, as I know a lot of people are, that they were finally able to build, there's a lot of people I should say, who were finally able to build a slightly more comfortable, slightly more stable life during the pandemic because they had a tremendous amount of income freed up to support themselves and that had previously gone to health insurance premiums, um, right? So Citizen Action, for example, has a member in um, our North Central co-op who um, she and her husband are a small business owner or small business owners. And before the pandemic, their monthly health insurance premiums were over $1,900, so nearly $2,000 a month. And um, after the American Rescue Plan Act, their monthly premiums went down to um, closer to $250, $270 a month, right? So that money was able to, that difference that literally over $1,000 a month was able to stay in their pockets and go back to supporting their families. Um, there's lots and lots of stories like this um, around yeah, the country that, out there. And, that, and I think if Democrats were smart, last thing I'll say, Matt, is because I know I'm kind of pontificating here a bit. If Democrats were smart, um, they would be trying to do everything they can to save these subsidies and to help the people um, who have been enrolled in Medicaid programs through continuous enrollment, um, because it is it is not going to be good for folks um, and for Democrats if, if all of these people all of a sudden lose their health coverage or their coverage costs jump back up by $1,000 a month. Claire, that story absolutely uh puts clarity, brings clarity <laughs> to, to what's at stake and why this is so important. Robert? So building on Claire's excellent analysis of the current situation, uh, let me take us back a little. The Affordable Care Act was passed by Democrats with inadequate subsidies and with cost sharing that it was very burdensome and inappropriate. And it was based on this moderate, a lot of people call neoliberal view that somehow we had to make people accountable and give them skin in the game. And that, and also this view that we needed to hold the deficit down when in fact, the, all we did is created space for Trump to run up historic deficits. And so uh, it was clear to all advocates and this match Wisconsin was uh, the leader in Wisconsin on fighting for passage of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, that the subsidies that they agreed to that Senator Baucus led in the Senate Finance Committee, which is the main blueprint for the bill, were entirely inadequate and also included horrendous things like the family glitch. It didn't count. Look at the cost of family health care uh, for your whole family in, in, in calculating how much, how much subsidy you needed just to save money, just bean counting. And so the, the, the American Rescue Plan was a huge advance and made it much more affordable. And let's remember that every single Democratic candidate for president, even the most moderate ones, ran on going well beyond the current Affordable Care Act and well beyond what the uh, American Rescue Plan did. One of our challenges is, is that so much was done the American Rescue Plan and our communication environment is so polluted that very few people even are aware that Democrats did this for them and now it's in jeopardy of being lost, and that reduces public involvement and information and pressure. Uh, what we do have to remember, though, is, is that the, the White House and uh, almost all Democrats were going to make this permanent, and that was the plan, just like the child tax credit 
And it was held up by the ridiculous situation in a 50-50 Senate where one senator can decide policy for everyone else and torpedo the political prospects of his own party. I'm talking about Joe Manchin. And as Matt and Claire pointed out, that's what this does. You're talking about, in addition to the human toll of this, uh, you're talking about raising people's health care costs at a time when in, the cost of living is top of mind because of inflation right before an election. They'll be getting their notifications right before they vote. And the question is, what are we unified enough on the left? Are we really pushing on this? Uh, a number of groups are, including Citizen Action and our federal allies, but we're only a portion of the left. A lot of the left is uh, continuing the campaign on Medicare for all, which I think needs the ultimate goal. But can we at this point, try to win this advance uh, because we can win it right now with enough pressure? This is absolutely critical. Look, I mean, it was brought up earlier on the show about like inflation and other things, right? We know it's a huge concern for people. You kidding me? You're going to have their healthcare costs skyrocket? It's, it's, It's crazy, especially when we know this is incredibly popular uh, with the public. It's absolutely the right thing to be done for public health policy. It fits in 100% with what the Democratic Party, and I'll just say the mainstream of the Democratic Party, the moderate parts of the Democratic Party have pitched as their healthcare solution. It's they, the whole argument against Medicare for all within the Democratic Party has been, we need to build, we need to uh, make sure first protect the ACA and build upon it. Well, you know what? This is building, this is protecting what we already have, quite frankly. Or you could argue it a little bit of building if you make this permanent, right? It is absolutely essential that this get done. It is currently not, is my understanding, and Claire, I'd love a clarification if I'm wrong, but it is my understanding this is not a part of the latest discussions with Mansion on what the next infrastructure, excuse me, the next, uh, the reconciliation budget bill. So like, if this doesn't get in there, uh, I assume this has to go through normal rules and it doesn't pass if it's not in there. This is an absolutely critical thing that must be done. And I would just say that the mainstream, the corporate, whatever you want to call it, part of the Democratic Party, it's absolutely essential that they get this done or they lose credibility that they're even serious about their basic thing that they're going to protect the basic ACA and build upon it, much less Robert brought up Medicare for all, please, Claire, am I, am I wrong that this is, do you know, is this in, I don't believe this is in the budget reconciliation, the latest discussions, whatever those are with Mr. Manchin. I mean, if I'm going to be glib, I would say I've stopped trying to predict what Joe Manchin is going to care about um, and what he is going to change his mind on. Um, if people want to learn more about Joe Manchin, um, I will point them to the excellent um, in-depth investigative reporting that um, the New York Times has done recently about Joe Manchin and his close ties to industry, in particular the coal industry, which I mean makes sense. He's from West Virginia, um, but about how much influence they hold with him and the policy positions he takes. Um, but I, so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know exactly what Joe Manchin has decided is his thing right now. What I will say is I know from our national partners that the three things on the healthcare front that they are continuing to push for and think they have the bulk of the majority or the bulk of the majority, that's redundant, um, the bulk of the Democratic um, caucus behind in the Senate um, is 
the uh, this issue, uh, the uh, American Rescue Plan's uh, ACA subsidies or marketplace subsidies, um, a temporary uh, closing of the Medicaid expansion gap at the federal level. So a direct coverage option or um, even further enhanced subsidies um, for people in states like Wisconsin um, that have that are that are above the state's uh, Medicaid program. So Badger Care for us, um, excuse me, uh, but uh, like I said, in that gap. Um, and then third, some prescription drug reform or relief. So uh, those are the three things on the healthcare front um, that our national partners have assured us that they that they're doubling down on and that they think the majority of the caucus supports. So I'm hopeful that those things, or at least you know two of them, will end up in budget reconciliation. You know, we just we just got to see how these negotiations pan out. Robert, any final thoughts before we go to break? It just shows the incredible importance of getting something because the Democrats pegged the 2022 election on having things they delivered, popular things. And I hope they can have a conversation with Senator Manchin that if, since he claims to be a loyal Democrat, would he please sign off on some things because otherwise he's going to guarantee a Republican majority and he's not going to be a committee chair? Can he please do it just for political reasons, no matter what the man believes about deficits or people being responsible for their own poverty or their lack of health care or family medical leave, all the other stuff we know about him? Well, folks, we're going to continue to not just watch this, but be active in this situation. You're going to hear more from us. We are going to push. Look, we're fortunate, uh, and we're going to talk more about Senator Baldwin in uh, the last segment of the show, but to have a leader like Senator Baldwin uh, nationally, who hopefully can help pick up the charge, and she's done that in other critical points, but uh, we're going to keep up the pressure on this and not let this go away. This has to be fixed. This needs to be a part of the budget reconciliation. Folks, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are also all over social media, uh, most impressively on Facebook, but also on Instagram and Twitter. We'll take a break and see you right after this break. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. And it is great to be joined by our full panel, which means Claire and Robert are with us. And folks, uh, gotta we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about healthcare. Um, spent some time. I mentioned uh, in the previous episode a little bit about Senator Baldwin potentially helping us uh, in this fight around healthcare, but wanted to mention uh, Senator Baldwin in a story this week that I wanted our listeners to be aware of if you missed it, but. She's gotten out front of a situation that is developing with Kohl's. Kohl's is everybody. It's an institution here in Wisconsin. And the concern is that uh, Kohl's is uh, making it very apparent publicly that they're open to selling and selling out to a potential vulture capitalist, which could mean uh, the loss of a lot of jobs and bad news for Kohl's. Uh, I wanted to give Robert or Claire, if you saw this, an opportunity to at least just comment on it, uh, if you had any thoughts. Robert or Claire? I will just say quickly on this, I guess I'm rewinding to give people broader narrative context in this episode of Battleground Wisconsin, but 
remember that right-wing courts in the late 1980s and the Reagan administration, actually aided and abetted to a great degree by the Clinton administration, set up a capitalist system where it's possible for uh, vulture capitalists and others to, to do leverage buyouts and take over companies and then gut them for profit. And the rules do not have to be set up that way. This is rigged for pro windfall profits and rigged against workers and average people. And the history of department stores, if you look at ones that are no longer with us, like the Boston store that was part of the same chain as uh, Macy's, they were bought up that way. And then they just gutted the company and there's no more Boston store. And you still see a number of empty storefronts in places along highways where they were. And it was a well, a very well-liked uh, chain, a uh, department store chain here in Wisconsin. And Kohl's may well suffer the same fate regardless of its popularity, regardless of how many jobs um, it provides, simply because there, it, it, it's more, there's more profit for a venture capitalist or vulture capitalist, we call it, in gutting a company, loading up with debt and spinning it off that, than there is in uh, actually running a business that actually produces economic value and goods for people and jobs. And there is no darn reason that our government, our Democrat government should be aiding abetting that rather than standing with average people. And so the same scenario is setting it up. They do not want to buy it in order to improve Cole's business model. They want to buy it in order to figure out how to make it killing. And then they're not held responsible for the carnage, not unlike how the big three gutted Michigan uh, uh, even though they'd made all of their, their fortunes in Michigan with generations of workers, as soon as they saw it in their interest to run overseas for cheaper labor than was being offered in Flint and Saginaw and the greater Detroit area. Same model, and that's happened in a lot of other industries in Wisconsin, especially the industrial areas, and it's caused a lot of carnage. Well, first of all, Claire, I'll give you an opportunity, but just to shout out to Senator Baldwin, I, I don't think I might not have heard about this if she hadn't uh, put out this release and sent out the call to the media that this was happening. And, you know, this, I, I see this in the context of what happened up is, or is continuing to happen up with Oshkosh Defense and the United States Postal Service trucks uh, and the idea that our other senator wouldn't even think to fight for those. And it also was revealed this week, which is even more appalling, and shout out to uh, Gordon Hintz for speaking out on this, uh, that it was revealed this week that Foxconn was actually approached by Oshkosh Defense about potentially having those trucks made on that site and that they rejected it or didn't even get back to them. Ah, it's just, you know, just the whole context of this is just, it, it's appalling. Uh, Claire, I wanted to give you an opportunity if you had any thoughts on any of these. Well, you took the biggest thing I was going to say, Matthew, um, which was to uh, draw a contrast between what Senator Baldwin is doing to fight for the jobs of people in Wisconsin, but also around the country at Kohl's um, and the lack of action uh, by the other senator of Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, um, in his very well-documented failure to fight for um, those jobs in, in Oshkosh. Um, uh, the, in case our readers haven't um, read the really great coverage in Up North News on Senator Baldwin's letter to the 
Cole's board of directors. And um, basically what she says is um, don't be duped by these folks who say that they will um, invest in Kohl's and make lots more money for um, shareholders um, and compares Kohl's situation to what happened with Shopco, which of course Shopco was um, another uh, Wisconsin-based uh, store that had a really big presence in communities. Say hello to goodbye at Shopco, right? Like an institution in our state. Got it. Same thing, Claire. Yes, absolutely. An institution. And so, um, you know, Tammy goes uh, goes in depth in her letter talking about how um, how the same proposition basically was was offered to Shopco, and what ended up happening is that they um, this the, the private equity firm took control of the company, um, sold it off for for parts, basically made a lot of money for themselves through um, dividends and management fees, um, and the people who suffered are the people of Wisconsin who. Um, lost their jobs and the communities who uh, lost this this great institution that they relied on. Um, so uh, I, I think it's remarkable, um, obviously, um, that Tammy is paying this close of attention um, and and that she's advocating so um, passionately for um, the the people of yeah. our state. And, and you know, and the last thing I'll say is, and she makes an excellent point that that the the stakeholders in this are not just the shareholders it is also the thousands of employees that Kohl's has around the company and the people who depend on the affordable department store that is Kohl's um, and and I think that's a message that gets lost a lot right but people talk about stakeholders in business they often just think shareholders um, and that really erases the human face of, of business. It's absolutely right. I would argue that is a, um, a very serious political statement that the senator is making there and that you're underscoring uh, because certainly the other side does not view it that way. They do not view uh, any sort of corporate responsibility, any sort of sense of that. You see that in the lack of um, response from Senator Johnson around, say, the Oshkosh defense. It's a completely different political view of what the role of a good corporate citizen is. And that's certainly what the senator is trying to lay out, because if that is not the case, I think a whole lot of people start to really rethink their relationship to capital. Robert, any final thoughts you have on this? Well, Ron Johnson doesn't think he represents average people. The question <laughs> is, do we have the political capacity to reveal that to voters in this election? Because Whoever of the many worthy contenders becomes the nominee to take him out, uh, take him out politically in November, we're not the right, I'm not proposing violence, um, then they're, we're going to have to make clear what his vision is versus a good vision. And we need to lay out as a, a U.S. senator how this our next senator will act more like Tammy Baldwin and use democracy for the common interest, not for the, the, uh, the corporate interest. And let's look at Foxconn. It's a cautionary note. I've said this before in Battleground, Wisconsin. Clearly, the contract negotiated by Scott Walker at the behest of the major business interests in this state uh, allows Foxconn to make this decision despite uh, this huge public investment, right? The contract shouldn't have allowed this. And why is that true? Because the contract was uh, negotiated on behalf of Foxconn 
and uh, and a Republican governor looking for a political advantage, as it, and Donald Trump was part of this as well, and not in the common interest. And this was clear, I've said this before, at the original marathon hearing, where I waited six, seven hours to testify, because every single major corporate leader in this state, I'm telling you, stood up there and said how great this was. And they're not being held accountable. Uh, what we're really hearing is, oh, bad Taiwanese company, Foxconn. I'm sorry. There was constant manufacturers in commerce, the Milwaukee Metropolitan Association of Commerce, all of them, all the major trade associations on the corporate and business side were all ashamed for this, as did a whole lot of UW officials who were trying to curry favor with the Walk administration in sort of a Stockholm syndrome. Don't hurt me. I'm trying to help you with your latest project. All, and by the way, my testimony, Stephanie Bloomingdale, the president of AFL-CIO's testimony, understated how bad this would be. And we said it would be horrible, and they, you should have seen them glaring at us. So... I just want to remind us how this happened had to do with politicians that don't represent workers and the people, but represent big corporations that pay their bills and for their campaign. Well, speaking of the mastermind, one of the masterminds behind the eighth wonder of the world, um, President, former President Trump. We started the show talking about Voss and his sham investigation. Let's end it by reminding everybody, in case you missed it, a judge this week said that Trump likely committed a felonies uh, by casting doubt in the way he was casting doubt on the 2020 election. Uh, there'll be more on this. We'll certainly track this, but folks, let's remember our democracy's at stake. It was very, very well laid out by Tim Nordine and how it's playing out in local elections. Please don't be fooled. Don't keep your eyes closed. Go read up if you haven't done your homework this weekend. We'll have a link to our endorsed candidates. Please take a look at it, but do your own damn research and get out and support public schools, support democracy, get out and vote in your communities. Again, Tuesday, April 5th. Folks, going to wrap up this show. Really want to thank Tim Nordine. Amazing, uh, beautiful interview. Uh, please get out and support Tim. If you live in that area, uh, vote for him and uh, see if there's some work you can do on behalf of one of those three candidates. I want to thank our producer, Brian Wooldridge, who makes the show happen every week. We'll see you next week. Battleground, Wisconsin. <laughs>